0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. It's where we're going to be for, well, I can't say how long. Don't know how long. If it's hard, I anticipate it is. Maybe we'll go more quickly. No, I'm not not making that commitment. Probably end up slowing down. Um, Revelation, verses 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're just starting with that introduction this morning. So let's take our Bibles and look there. And I will read it for us. Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. I invite you to pray with me. God, we need you to feed us. You've given us this book, the entirety of your word, that it may awaken us to our need for a savior in Jesus, your son. You've given this book that we may be nourished by it and thereby live in this world in a way that honors you increasingly. God, you call men to preach and as a messenger of this word this morning, Father, I need divine assistance. We need to hear beyond the voice of a man. We need to hear from you. And we know that you do that by your Holy Spirit, so we pray that you would plant in us your living and abiding word that awakens us to life and nourishes us to live. Give us all that sense of expectancy that we will hear from you. By your spirit, sanctify us in this, your word that is truth. We pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Providentially, I suppose I happened upon an article this last week that was reviewing a kid's book dealing with the overarching themes in the book of Revelation. Uh, the writer of this article describing the value of, of the book itself about Revelation. What he was doing was contrasting his own experience. The, the author of this uh, review, Joe Carter, he reflected on his own upbringing in his church and it sounded much like my own. Sermons and teachings on Revelation were often focused on attempting to attach aspects of the vision that we will see in this book, attach that to various world events. And perhaps you have heard that the insect-like creatures in Revelation 9-9 were Russian aircraft. I remember hearing that as a kid. Maybe like me, that I used to feel, I feared being left behind which is also a series of books and movies, if I wasn't right with God at the very moment that Jesus returned like a thief in the night, also the name of a low-budget movie. Growing up, that was kind of my experience with the book of Revelation. I've determined that we're going to launch into this together. Today we're beginning this series through this last book of the Bible. And verse 1 begins the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that that original word behind Revelation, it's that koine, common Greek, and this is first-century Greek, koine Greek word, apocalypse, apocalypse. This is where we get the English word apocalypse. Now, when you hear that word apocalypse, what comes to mind? The way that that word is often used in common parlance, and I, I verified this in the Internet Dictionary, the complete and final destruction of the world. And, of course, as you know, this, the word apocalypse has, has spawned all kinds of uh, genre of, in this genre, of doomsday, doomsday movies. But the word apocalypse literally means unveiling, unveiling. Something that had been hidden is now revealed. Now... John's vision, as we'll see as we move through this, John's vision certainly does depict an epic battle referred to as the the battle of the great day of God the Almighty. That's Revelation 16, 4. But that battle isn't the main point of the book. And then speaking of that battle, we find there in the the context, the word Armageddon, that according to Revelation 16, 16, is, is a location where These demonically motivated kings, they gather there. And of course, as we know, that that word has also entered the popular lexicon. Recently, maybe you heard this in the news, President Biden even invoked Armageddon in that typically off-the-cuff way that he speaks. And he was speaking about a potential of threat of nuclear conflict initiated by Russia. He used that word Armageddon. Well, it's, it's popular misconceptions about Revelation, preconceptions, maybe a fascination with the future. I would add to that, theologically suspect Christian novels and movies. Confusion, of course, about the very bizarre images, and a handful of other reasons. Have, I have to admit that I've had some fear and trepidation of, of tackling this. But it's the word of God it's in the scriptures and i know that it's been preserved for us Now, i also know that as we begin this there are certainly here some here more certain than others about what revelation reveals regarding the events just before jesus return and and maybe you're familiar with the major eschatological that is end times theology positions perhaps you are in one of these camps, a premillennial dispensationalist or a historic premillennialist or a postmillennialist or amillennial? I have my own leanings here. Uh, we've said this before as we were moving through Daniel in Sunday school class. As a church, our position, we are, I use the term agnostic, it doesn't mean we don't believe in God. We simply haven't declared we have an official position as a church on our particular uh, view of eschatology among the elder team we have differing views on on these things i won't reveal mine right now you'll probably figure it out the church i grew up in though did assumed a position and the first church where i served as a pastor required me to hold that position that was back in canada but based on my own study my position has changed. And and I suspect that as we encounter this book, it's possible that maybe our preconceptions or our ideas might get formed a little bit differently. And that's that's a good thing. But as, as we move through this, I'm going to be learning along with you. I've studied it in the past and and I've come to some conclusions. I've studied it in the interim and I've come to different conclusions and I'm studying it again. And I'm not talking about being wishy-washy here. There's some essential doctrines that we can hold tightly to, but saying what this particular vision or that particular image exactly means, there's a lot of speculation and there's a lot of disagreement among faithful Christians and we've got to, we've got to hold some of these things fairly loosely. I will be doing the same. I've learned, as well, that the differences between some of these views depends on differing hermeneutical, that is to say, textual interpretation presuppositions. Now, perhaps some of you, your eyes are already glazing over, what's he talking about? My point is that through this, my objective isn't to land on a particular eschatological, that is to say, meaning, end times position. Rather, in this journey, I want us to consider these first three verses as laying out the purpose of this book of the Bible. And I have three things to take away as, as I'm going to be using them as a kind of a, an overarching template for what we'll be discussing as we move through this important last book of the Bible. So first thing, first thing to note is that it's a prophecy from and about JESUS. THAT'S THE FIRST THING I WANT TO NOTE. SECONDLY, THAT IT'S FOR JESUS' SERVANTS TO BE BLESSED. AND THIRD, THAT IT'S IMMINENT. FIRST, THE FIRST TRUTH TO KNOW IS THAT IT'S A PROPHECY FROM AND ABOUT JESUS. NOW IF YOU WATCH A a GOOD MOVIE or, OR READ A GOOD NOVEL, you're gonna encounter a lot of important details that fill out the story. But those details are not all the main point. For example, uh, I like this movie, so I'm mentioning it again. The movie Princess Bride is not primarily about uh, Inigo Motoya exacting revenge on Prince Humperdinck. That's not primarily the, the point of the movie. Nor is it primarily about how to restore life to one who is mostly dead. That's not what it is about. And I think we get that. That's obvious. Yeah, when it comes to the book of Revelation, so often I think people miss the point. They miss the point. There's so much fascination with the details of John's vision that we certainly could miss the point, right? And as I gave an example, it's like, well, those insect things, those are Russian helicopters to be sure. I wonder what Christians in Russia say, you know? Anyway, they don't say, those are our helicopters, do they? They probably say, those are the American helicopters, for all I know. Anyway, it's a lot of fascination with these details. Then the challenge begins with simply trying to understand the things that John sees in his vision. And we're asking the question, are they meant to be understood symbolically or literally? These are questions on my mind. Is a thousand years, we'll get to that later, a literal millennium? Something that we will Experience, And when Jesus returns, when we see him, will he appear to us as a lamb who had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes? Well, the first question, some, maybe even many, would say, yes, that's literal. To the second, I think probably all would take that as symbolic. Now, I'm not going to deal with those questions here, but I'm just sort of laying out examples of the way in which this is challenging. Suffice it to say that John's vision as we will see contains details and images the meanings of which many faithful christians will disagree but what's the point what's the point of it all again look at verse 1 the revelation of that is the unveiling of jesus christ now revelation of that that means belonging to or ori- originating from Jesus Christ, but it is also about Jesus Christ. That grammatically could be included there. Now, this book, it kind of reads like a letter, it, but it belongs to this category of, of a literary genre called apocalyptic literature. There are other examples in the Bible, so if you've read... You know, in Joel or in Daniel, we've covered that in Sunday School, Zechariah, Ezekiel, even Isaiah, you'll see apocalyptic stuff in there. The characteristics of this genre of of literature, I mean, it's something that existed outside of the Bible too, but characteristics of this genre of literature, it's the presentation of new knowledge previously hidden. So that's one characteristic. There's a heavy use of prophetic visions. Example, you'll see in Revelation, John often says, I saw, I saw, then I saw, I saw. Can't remember how many times, but you see that a lot. And there's a heavy symbolism and and the use of otherworldly, unearthly images, things that we don't see in in our reality. There's there's also the sense that the, the present It's fraught with with suffering, uncertainty, and persecution. And the overarching idea that you get from apocalyptic is that God is sovereign and his victory over sin and evil is absolutely assured. Those are some of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature and, and Revelation falls into that category. Now, whatever else is included in this book, in this book of the Bible, this unveiling, Christ is at the center of it. Verses 1 and 2 continues. He, that is Christ, made it known, what? This unveiling. By sending his angel, a messenger of God, to his servant John, who, verse 2, bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Note that. He bore witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is from and about Jesus Christ. And because that's true, brothers and sisters, it is a hopeful book. What God tells us, what God tells his people, what Jesus tells us is ultimately good news. It's a book, I would suggest, that completes the telling of the gospel, that that the plight of man brought about by, by sin and rebellion... I shouldn't impersonalize this our sin and rebellion and the resulting curse on creation. All of that will be finally and fully eradicated by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified in our place and raised to life on the third day, ascended to, to rule over all, and then returning again in power and glory for the joy and the eternal comfort of all who would look to him in faith. And the outcome of this for God's people, flip to the end of the book, chapter 22, it says, and we'll get there again. The outcome, no longer will there be anything accursed Bible, I I hope you agree with this, the whole Bible broadly speaking is is about revealing the Christ whether that's Genesis, the the poetic books the prophets, the whole of the New Testament the Bible lays the foundation and then, then presents Christ in his glory for the saving of a people who had been set apart by God The Apostle Paul, in explaining God's plan to enfold the nations into his saving purposes in Christ, he makes this argument at the end of of chapter 11 of Romans by saying this, for from him, he's referring to Christ, right? For from him and through him and to him are all things, To Him be glory forever. Amen. From Him, from Christ, through Him, through Christ, and back to Him are all things. All things. Revelation is explicitly about that, but the entirety of creation has been laid out so that for from Him and through Him and to Him ultimately are all things. And we'll see that on display as we study this book. Well, the second observational truth that I want us to take to heart heart about Revelation is that it is for Jesus' servants to be blessed. It's for Jesus' servants to be blessed. Now, there are a lot of um, allusions and metaphors from the Bible that have become common cultural expressions. I think many people don't even often recognize that those things originated in the Bible. Two examples perhaps you're familiar with when somebody says, turn the other cheek. Well, Jesus said that. And someone who sees the writing on the wall, well, that's that's in Daniel chapter 5. Babylonian king, Belshazzar. We hear people use these expressions often. That's, of course, not surprising to me, at least, in my own estimation. The Bible is really foundational for the entire scope of Western literary tradition. I I think that's true. But I mentioned this, right? Last week, President Biden made what was likely, I think, probably an unscripted remark about Armageddon. He was discussing the escalated tensions between Russia and the West over Ukraine. And responses to that comment, I think fell into two categories. On the one hand, there are those who say, well, that's just the president carelessly saying things for effect, whether true or not. But I expect that his desire, I'm just guessing here, was to stoke some measure of fear Armageddon, fear. Some were annoyed, but I think some became fearful. What's going on? He said the Armageddon word. Now we'll deal with Armageddon in chapter 16, but I think you know that that word representing a place, plain or the hills of the sons of Megiddo, valley of Megiddo, that word provokes fear, doesn't it? Maybe you saw that movie with, I think it was Bruce Willis, about an asteroid hurtling toward earth called it Armageddon well as Christians should we be fearful about Armageddon whatever that means should we be uncertain and fearful about what is before us I'll suggest to you that's not the message of revelation it's not one that's supposed to provoke fear in God's people we're told reading it means we'll be blessed right Verses 1 and 3 tell us who the book is for, the intended audience, that is to say, and what is the benefit to them. So, I've already given this away, but you see it in the text. First of all, who is the audience of the book? It says, verse 1, which God gave him to show his servants. His servants. It's for the servants of Jesus. Now, who are these people? Well, hopefully you number yourself among the servants of Jesus, but just to be clear what that means, Jesus' servants are those that he has bought with his blood those who recognize their own sin. You're Jesus' servant if you understand your own sin and and that all sin ultimately separates you from God and subjects you to his wrath. You are his servant if you've seen that in yourself. And that as a result of that, you have looked to Christ. You've looked to the Son of God who became a man. You've trusted that his death on the cross that that was the full payment for your sin. And that apart from trusting Christ, you would certainly be condemned. That's the gospel message, friends. The way to be saved is to recognize and repent of your sin before God. Look to the Son of God who is crucified as a substitute in your place. And having believed and truly trusted in him, you're, that's the evidence of new life. Faith. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. And so you are a servant of Jesus if you have received the gift of God through faith in Christ. And that by believing that he died in your place and then rose again on the third day, you have eternal life in him. That makes you a servant of Christ. But being a servant of Christ, all Creatures, All humanity, we've been created to serve. So either you're going to serve God or you're going to serve what's opposed to him. There's no no middle ground in that. And if you don't serve God, you are a slave to that very sin that will ultimately condemn you. That's what the Bible says. But again, if you've truly looked to Christ in faith, your enslavement to that sin, your bondage to it, both its eternal consequence, the condemnation, but also its effect in the present. If you've looked at him, that's been broken; that's been taken away. You are now free. A servant of Jesus is somebody who's free in Christ and yet enslaved to Him. The Apostle Paul tells about this in Romans six twenty two. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves. You see that? You're set free from sin, no longer in bondage to sin, but it automatically transfers you into the slavery to God, becoming a servant of Jesus Christ. But that's a good thing. Because you're enslaved to be as delightfully and wonderfully human as you were intended to be when you're connected to God like that. So if that's you, if you have been set free from sin through faith in Christ, you're a servant of his. And here's the benefit. Here's the benefit of revelation. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. (laughs) That gave me pause there. Read aloud. That was interesting. Now, I'm not completely sure about this, but it seems to me that we're being told here that this book is not something to be kept undercover and just opened in secret, but we're to open it up and boldly read what it says, to delight in its words, to speak about it, to share it with one another. Blessed is the one. Blessed. To read it aloud. To be blessed, I think you know this, it's to be well off. It's to be fortunate and happy. What do people say? Like, if things are going well in your life, if somebody, you know, we were last weekend at a wedding and, and you know, hey, I have seen somebody you haven't seen in years. Hey, how's it going? It's like, ah, oh, you know, I feel blessed. My kids are here. My grandkids are here. It's, these are gifts from God. We feel, I'm fortunate. I'm happy. And you know this. If, if you've got your own children, whether those are born naturally or, or adopted, you regard them and, and treat them in a particular way, you, differently from other children. You treat them differently than the kids down the street. You love them particularly. You nurture them particularly. You provide for them particularly. You think of ways to delight them. You do good things for them just because they're your children. You bless them. You want their happiness Now as servants of God, as children of God, as servants of Jesus Christ, in like manner, Revelation has been given to bless us, to bless the children of God, to make us happy, to to give us that sense that we are fortunate. Now, when you read through Revelation, there's depictions of evil. There is suffering. There's persecution. There's death for God's people. There's wrath. There is judgment. Those things are are there. So we've got to see that the blessing is in the victory and vindication of Jesus. Evil can flail and foment for a time. But in the end, Christ will be vindicated and prevail. And all creation and this is, how, this is how we can delight in this. All creation will know and see that Satan is defeated. And God's people will find healing. They'll find life eternal with Christ. And that is the key, with Christ. And I suppose an unbeliever, somebody who is not a servant of Jesus, can read through Revelation and be horrified and be fearful and when the president says Armageddon think oh boy that's our destruction but for the people of God whatever's happening in that battle at the end we get healing and fellowship and joy eternal with Christ that blessing is yours despite the reality and even the certainty of suffering, even as, um, as Josh was sharing about Haiti. We, it feels okay here. Right? We might gripe and complain about what the government does, but we've got a lot of freedom here. But for Christians in Haiti with gangs running around the street, I don't know how that feels, but it feels probably like they're in the midst of some of that stuff going on in Revelation. And they can read this and be blessed. A Psalmist says this I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. He says as a couple verses later, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There is weeping. There is suffering, weeping may tarry for the night, but there's a mourning, there's a joy. And, and Christian brothers and sisters, we are blessed even in the midst of suffering because there's joy in the morning. The Apostle Paul, no doubt reflecting on his own suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul encouraged the Corinthian believers saying this. He says this, and, and understand what Paul went through. Shipwrecked, he was beaten within an inch of his life, whipped nearly to death, stoned and left for dead. But he says this, and it's in light of how he lived that this is particularly jarring for this light and momentary affliction. He almost died, but it's light and momentary. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, that's the stuff around us, but to the things that are unseen. Back to our text. Blessed, verse 3, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So it's not just hearing, but keeping it. So the blessing isn't just, oh, well, that's nice to say and close the book, but there's some it demands something of us. It's to be obeyed. This is similar to what James says in his letter, he says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, so you hear what it has to say, but do it. Obey it. It's what Jesus said in the Great Commission. He said, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. The same is true of Revelation. So the blessing comes from, not just from hearing, but obeying what it says. So, What are we to obey? There's lots of visions. There's lots of descriptions. But in the the chapters immediately following this, we're going to see lots of exhortations to do some things. So I'm just going to summarize some things. Here's some things to obey, brothers and sisters, as we think of what it's like to live, perhaps in a time of peace, but perhaps in a time of persecution. Here's a question: Have you grown cold in your faith? Remember your first love and repent. Revelation 2, four and five. Are you suffering? Be faithful unto death, Revelation 2:10. Are you putting your hope in temporal things? Are you indulging your flesh? Repent of your idolatry and your sexual immorality. Revelation 2:14. Are you becoming kind of wobbly or, or squishy when it comes to difficult doctrines in the scriptures, things that the culture hates and mocks. Hold fast to the truth. Do not tolerate false teachers. Revelation 2:20. Maybe you're faking it. Maybe you're kind of putting on a show of holiness. You need to wake up from your false piety and spiritual deadness. Revelation 3, 2. Maybe, maybe you feel beat down and abandoned. Wonder if you can even continue. Though you feel weak, hold Fast to your faith. Revelation 3.11. Are you playing it safe? Kind of keeping the middle ground of faith so as not to offend your unbelieving friends. Don't be satisfied with your mediocrity. Welcome Jesus into your midst and enjoy the spiritual riches of Christ. Revelation 3, 18. You're probably familiar with 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I don't have to tell you how important this book is. It's in the Bible. But I want to reinforce it anyway. As he says in verse 2, it's the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So like all of Scripture, it has been breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16. Like all of Scripture, it is living and active. So when you read it, it's going to do something to you. When you take it to heart, it's going to have an effect on you. It's active. It acts on you. It's unlike any other word, right? The Bible. Read literature. You stand over and go, ah, maybe that's good, maybe that's not. With the Bible, it, we stand under it. It's God speaking. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is life-sustaining, Deuteronomy 8.3. It is for our sanctification to make us holy, John 17.17. 17. So we're going to read this aloud. We're going to hear what it says. And by the grace of God, we're going to obey it. And because the word of God declares it, we should fully expect to be blessed. Well, lastly, it's imminent. Imminent. I don't think we use that word very often, but I like it. It's a good word. Things that are imminent. We say somebody's in imminent danger. It just means something's near, right? Like it's right there. When I was a little kid, uh, the summer break from school just seemed to last forever. It was just like, wow, this is great. And waiting for big holidays, special events like Christmas seemed so long, it just seemed so long. Even though my mom and dad would say, well, soon it'll be Christmas. No, that's like four weeks away. That's uh, like, that's forever, right? But here I am just on the precipice of 60 and time just flies by, Right? <laughs> Now, considering eternity, this, this life, it's, it's, it's kind of just a breath. It's a, it's a blip. It's really a matter of perspective, isn't it? Now, as I've read this opening, these first three verses, I, I've often struggled to understand this introduction. The revelation is of and from Christ. It is about the things that must soon take place. Verse 3, for the time is near. Soon, near. And we read this from our perspective. It's like, ooh, this This could be tomorrow. But ever since it's been written down, that's like almost 2,000 years ago, people have asked the question, right? Is this soon to John? To us or both? Now I wonder as well if if some of the things depicted and predicted in this vision have happened yet. I, I certainly think that John's vision symbolically describes things that have always been part of the Christian experience that suffering that, that Jesus told his disciples to expect, he told them to expect it when he said, in this world you will have tribulation, John 16, But we can also be certain that some of the things prophesied in this book have certainly not taken place yet. Clearly, chapters 21 and 22 have not happened yet. We have not yet seen the new heavens and the new earth. We have not yet seen the return of Christ. Yet it is soon Almost 2,000 years since this was written down, but it is soon. The time is near. Clearly, soon could be tomorrow, or soon could be one or two or 10,000 years. And it's really a matter of perspective. Time is not irrelevant, but it is experientially relative. What we're dealing with here is God's timetable. Soon. It says at the end, I'm coming. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. He said it to John nearly 2,000 years ago. I'm coming soon. So we've got to have a different perspective on what soon means. Well, Peter reminds us God's way of reckoning time. He says in 2 Peter 3 eight, do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord, one day, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So in the soon and the near, I think the takeaway from this is that we're to live with this sense of imminence, the nearness of Christ's return and the consummation of the kingdom of God. When Jesus was with his disciples, he urged to them that, that same sense of of readiness, and they were asking him questions. When's it all going to wrap up? My paraphrase. They said to him, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? How are we going to know? We told him lots of things, and he gave them some signs, and there would be some immediate effects and I think ultimately the destruction of the temple. But he said about the end, about that day and that hour, it's not for you to know. But he followed up that teaching with a couple of parables. And one, the parable of the ten virgins. At the end of it, I won't give you the story. But at the end of it, he says, Watch therefore, for you do not, sorry, Watch therefore, for you know not the day nor the hour. You don't know when. Live like it's soon. The message from the angel to John that these things must soon take place demands that we live in a way that we believe that Christ's return is imminent. So in light of that, how then should we live? How then should we live? Well, we shouldn't get too attached to temporal things. And I know in a season of relative peace, and prosperity, that's such an easy temptation to fall into, isn't it? But if you, if you have even a, a little bit of a retirement account, the, the older ones in the room, or an IRA or something like that, you've watched that lately, you go, ooh, man, that's just turning to sawdust, isn't it? Don't get too attached to it. Don't, don't be bound up in those, like, this is my hope. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, That's what we got to do. That's our top priority. We live in a way to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. We also have to hold our possessions loosely. That hurricane barreled, Ian barreled through Florida several weeks ago. The family members who have a place there and some church members among us have been wiped out. And that's hard. That's very hard. And it doesn't mean it's not a painful thing. It doesn't mean it's not upending. It doesn't. But in perspective, we hold these things loosely because the time is near. Hold your possessions loosely. Hold money loosely. Hold your plans loosely. This is a challenge for me. It's like, you know, you make plans to do this or that thing. It's like, Lord, I hope nothing gets in the way of that. I'm really looking forward to that thing. I find myself doing this all the time and reminding myself, hold it loosely. It could change. It's not up to me. God, you're in charge. The time is near, right? Hold those with an open hand. And in response, cherish what is eternal. What's God's word? Cherish this book of Revelation. And, and perhaps if, if nothing else as we've moved through it, You see the experience of the believers suffering, crying out for justice, crying out for God to do something, and then reading through the end and we see that there's this glorious ending and hope for the people of God. We've got to look around us, brothers and sisters, see that this world, it's all just crumbling. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't work for good, that you shouldn't vote in a way that does best to, to be the flourishing of all people. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean you shouldn't work your job well and, and, and do the best and be generous with people around you and help your neighbors and do good. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do those things, but it's temporary. The end, the time is near. We cherish God's word. And I think the other takeaway is that we should understand that suffering is to be expected. It's to be expected. Revelation depicts suffering for God's people. So expect it. In fact, as Peter said in his letter, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you the fiery trial is not strange. And we've been in a season in this part of the world, a fairly long season of relative peace and prosperity. And when things go wrong and the government seem to abuse power, we go, oh, things are bad. Relatively speaking, they've been pretty good. But all we have to do is look to Haiti Or look to other nations where there's all this disruption. Or look to the Middle East where Christians are killed. Or look to Pakistan. How can you be a believer in Pakistan? It's hard. Suffering is to be expected. And in the midst of that, be ready to speak of your eternal confidence in Christ. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. And do it with gentleness and respect. The final takeaway, I think, would be this. Take every opportunity, every opportunity to be reminded of God's eternal promises. So you're here, but continue to make this a priority. Gather with God's people in worship to, to celebrate what Christ has done for us and then anticipate His glory that is to come that's surely depicted here in the book of Revelation. We don't neglect gathering with God's people, as it says in Hebrews 10.25. Why? So we can be stirred up to love and good works, the very character qualities that, that show who we belong to. When you're stirred up to love and good works, it points back to Jesus as our Savior, as the one who redeemed us, as the one who called us to himself, as the one who put his love in us, the one who sanctifies us, the one who makes him ultimately like himself so that we behave in a way that is befitting the child of God. Well, Revelation. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus' vindication and his victory. All glory, we'll discover as we move through this, all glory belongs to Jesus. He alone is worthy. This book, it is for us to be blessed, and we are blessed because This book is God speaking and when God speaks and the Holy Spirit applies it, people are made spiritually alive and and those who are spiritually alive are nourished to continue. So let's count on being blessed as we read it. But it also reminds us that the time is near. So let's live like it. We don't know when Jesus will come back. But let's live like we want him to. All right? All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us and we barely scratched the surface this morning, but we do want the blessing that you have promised for those who read it aloud, hear it and obey it. So God, pour that blessing upon us even as we seek to know you and obey you and live for you and be witnesses for you in this world. For the glory of Jesus, we pray it. Amen.